You're listening to Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary. It took much for William Ross to step out of his home and into the town's muddy streets. He didn't like being around lesser men, of whom there would always be one seeking some sort of handout. He hated the stench of the steaming rivers of waste that flowed from the nearby factories. The combination of people, pollution, and noise made him wonder why he ever wanted to make his home here. But today he was in a light mood, so didn't mind venturing out. He and his business associates were off to an execution, and William liked executions. They were free entertainment, provided a civic duty, and helped the rabble keep themselves in check. They would cheer it on vociferously, failing to realize that what they were actually doing was giving permission for it to happen to any one of them. William found amusement in this thought, watching the cattle celebrate the slaughterhouse. Savages. More than anything else, Executions spoke to something in him that he had only shared with a rare few. It was one of the only instances where he could allow himself to indulge those feelings among others. He lit a cigar to counteract the odor of the street and walked with his bodyguard to where his associates were waiting. He had never liked any of them, but they were men of the same standing as himself and if he had to spend time with anyone, it might as well be his equals. None of them would even be able to imagine his history, and that suited William just fine. So he put on his mask of refinement, and he tolerated their presence, blending into the world of privilege, never standing out. One of them had sent a man ahead to reserve a prime viewing spot for them, though when they arrived they found that they needn't have bothered, as it wasn't particularly busy. When the condemned was brought out, there were the usual jeers from those assembled, but William and his associates were the most full-throated, and they stamped their sticks on the floor to add to the din. The list of crimes was read out, but no one paid any attention to them. Burglary, witchcraft, murder, one was as good as another. When the platform finally dropped and the condemned danced his hangman's jig, the onlookers cheered and applauded. The last thing the criminal heard in life was people celebrating him leaving it. William Ross was among those clapping heartily and he looked around the bloodthirsty throng to watch the cattle revel. Through an opening of people, he spotted a man in a mud-spackled green coat, wearing a beaten-looking Dorsey beaver hat. The man was also clapping, but there was no enthusiasm behind it. It was as though he was bemused in his watching, cold and detached. When it was over, the man folded his arms and looked around at the now-dispersing crowd 
allowing William to finally gain a good look at him. He wasn't tall, but he had broad, square shoulders. His short beard and what little of the hair on his head that could be seen showed evidence of what may have once been a reddish tinge, but was now colorless and ashen. One eye was pinched into a squint. The other was too wide. The skin was weathered and lean. There was a scar across his throat. William choked on his cigar as he laid eyes upon him, which in turn caught the squinting man's attention. His expression didn't change. He remained as still as he had been previously. But now William had his full focus. His one good eye was filled with malice and purpose. One of William's companions, an older man named Fisher, tapped him on the arm, asking if he was all right. Your constitution towards these hangings must be getting weaker, the man said with a laugh. You look as though you've seen a ghost, you old milksop. William turned on him with a sudden viciousness and grabbed Fisher by the lapels, causing him to cry out and lose his footing, nearly falling over in the mud. The mask slipped for a moment, revealing the hidden gleam in his eye, the sharpness of his teeth, and the hint of his fathomless disdain. William pushed him away and straightened out his own jacket. When he looked back, the man with the squint was still looking at him. William tapped his bodyguard on the arm. Take me home, he instructed, and the big man obliged. The onlooker's gaze followed him as he walked away. William's townhouse stood detached from the other buildings on the street. It was large and clean and surrounded by a five-foot iron fence. There were Roman-style columns carved into the sandstone facade, and the path to the front door was flanked by a pebble garden with identical water features on each side. There would be no mistaking to any passerby that someone important lived here. The house had once been his father's, but when William was fourteen, his father died, and it passed on to him. Six years later, his mother disappeared, seemingly tired of her son's regular travels and refusal to marry. It was as if she had just walked out the door in the dead of night, making William the sole resident. He liked it that way. On any given night, it wasn't unusual to find a guard or two coming in and out of the house throughout the evening. But tonight, the premises was covered in hired help that had been called in by his bodyguard at short notice. Each was equipped with a lamp and a weapon of some sort. Some carried rifles, others batons, and all maintained patrol at once, teeming over the building as if it were a military outpost. As the night set in, the grounds were wreathed in light, which bathed the street in the perpetual warm glow of flames. Had anyone felt that they could do so without repercussion, they may have complained about the nuisance of being kept awake by it. As it stood, no one did. 
but for William it was a necessary measure, more than worth the annoyance to the street's other residents. The encounter earlier had shaken him so much, he found himself starting to believe things he had never previously thought possible. Fisher had told him he looked as though he'd seen a ghost, and now he was starting to think that he had. For the man with the squint was known to him. He knew him to be dead. It was a late hour, but he was questioning if he'd be able to sleep. His mind was a knot of worry, and his anxiety prevented him from sitting still for too long. Despite the men stationed around the premises, the uneasy feeling wouldn't leave him. He picked up his candle and decided to sweep the rooms once more by himself. He left his own room, locking the door behind him, and tread lightly as he walked across the landing. He then slowly checked every room on the upstairs level in sequence, then locked each of them once he was satisfied that they were empty. After this task was complete, he made his way back to his room, unlocked the door, and stepped inside. The sconces had gone out. All was dark within. A breath swiftly blew out his candle, and an arm pulled him into the blackness, sending him sprawling across the floor. He tried to cry out, but there was now a hand clamped over his mouth. He ceased struggling when he felt the blade slip under his chin and hold there. All this for me, a voice said in his ear. It was nothing more than a harsh whisper, not because the speaker was trying to keep from being detected. William could hear in his tone that it was all he was physically able to produce. You, William Ross, a deliverer of misery to all he meets, frightened so. William wanted to scream out for his men, but the terror and the feel of the blade over his Adam's apple stifled his ability to do so. Have you felt my approach, William? Has my advance haunted your days? The hand across his mouth slackened. For the first time, William was able to muster a sound, as hoarse and full of effort as the stranger's. You're mistaken? I don't even know who you are. You're trespassing on... The blade turned slightly against his throat, drawing a bead of blood. You don't know me? The man asked. Is that how little you think of those you've left behind? He brought his mouth closer to William's ear. I know you, William Ross. These days... I know you better than you know yourself. The whisper made William's flesh crawl, as if the words were tickling him beneath it. You knew me in the square, though, didn't you? Did you think me an apparition? How else could a stranger, killed hundreds of miles away, have possibly found you? A tremble betrayed William's stillness and his back started to cramp, but even then he did not dare to move and risk the knife sliding further across his throat. 
His eyes had adjusted to the dark, and he believed he could see the secret door to the servant's entrance open in the corner. This must be how the man entered without detection. He cursed himself for forgetting to check it. For every deed, you leave a trail, the man continued. If one is so inclined to find it, they can follow it to this moment, right here. That trail tells a story. A story of a young man. A spoiled, cruel creature. Whose father was dead. His mother gone. And with no one to help him with his inherited debt. Instead of facing his creditors like a man, he decides to lean into those mean little tendencies he's felt since he was young and forms a plot. Every week, he is invited by his business rivals to a function of some kind where men of means can indulge themselves. Illegal card games, debasement parties, and the like. Places where prying eyes and laws aren't welcome. And this young man uses this knowledge to his advantage. He gathers himself a group of low lives, many of whom I just saw outside, dons a disguise, and together they rob these functions. Thousands in cash and coin they'd never be able to report as stolen. And with those stolen funds, he pays off his debts to those people he owed with their own money. But he was careful. Oh, so careful. Always making payments of reasonable, believable amounts so no one would suspect him. No one would ever link what was happening back to him. Back to William Ross. William's breathing stuttered. How could this man know such things? There was no one he could have encountered on his journey here that could possibly have told him. Even his own men knew less about his actions during those raiding days than this stranger did. But what started as a way to get free from under a thumb grew into a passion. Even when you'd paid your debts, you couldn't give it up, could you? That cruel seed that had always been within you, now had a way to flower. You kept your group together, and you robbed, beat, and killed whoever you felt like for months. Then when you drew too much attention, you could retreat back to the protection of your civilized life. So it was that you came to a public house one afternoon, you and your men. Maybe you came with the intention to steal from the landlord. 
Maybe you were just looking to intimidate everyone. Either way, you sought to impress yourself upon each of the patrons, men and women alike. But there was one who wouldn't be intimidated, and who wouldn't stand for your doing it to anyone else. You remember him now? You remember Mason Hale? Mark well the name, as in these last pitiful minutes of your existence, it shall be the name of God to you. For the first time, William let out a breath of unashamed fear. But, but how? He stuttered. How? Mason repeated. You ordered your men to drag me outside the tavern. They beat me as you watched. Beat me for the unimaginable crime of not allowing you to treat those people so disgracefully. Then, lying on my stomach on the floor like a beast, they held each of my arms out straight. You looked me square in the face, smiled, then cut my throat. Mason's blade licked across William's neck, gently enough as to not break the skin, but with enough intention to make him pull his head back in an effort to escape its touch. Mason's knee dug into William's lower back sharply to prevent him rising from his prone position. You all watched and laughed as I bled out over the dirt. I died. And you all left. You abandoned me where I lay, leaving the burying to the landlord without even checking if you'd done the job properly. I lay there, under the shallow earth, both dead and not dead, lingering in the space between. And wherever I was, I heard voices. Not choirs of angels, not the voices of the saints, but people. Somehow, some way, I fought my way back. I woke from that terrible state of in-between, and I pulled myself out of my own grave, barely knowing who or where I was. In the days and weeks that followed, after the landlord cared for me through the longest, slowest, most agonizing time of recovery, I found that the voices had followed me and could hear them even then. I thought I'd gone mad from the trauma, and these voices were a result. How they tormented me. But, mad or not, when I was finally well enough to walk under my own steam and my strength had returned, I took to the road and set out on a mission.
I was going to find you and kill you. I didn't know your name or where you called home, and I know it wasn't likely that others would either, but I was going to try. I went to Croton, and I made inquiries, but no one could tell me anything of use. But it was there I'd found you'd left me a gift. See here, I found a new voice waiting. And instead of ignoring it, thinking it a symptom of my madness, I started to listen to what it had to say. Really listen. And I came to realize that it wasn't coming from inside my head at all. It was the voice of someone long dead. Every voice I had heard since my return had been the voice of the dead. They were speaking and no one could hear them but I. You condemned me to that, to a lifetime of haunting. They told me things, secrets of this world that they could witness from that in-between place that I had seen. You'd killed a man there long before. Gavin Purdy. Did you forget him also? It was he who gave me your name and told me where you went after you killed him. I followed where he told me, and sure enough, there I found another voice that told me even more about you. Before long, these voices, these speakers of the dead, told me every secret you've ever held in your life. In each town I journeyed to, I found another victim, each forming another link in a terrible trail. And it was they who led me right to your door. But they had only brought me so far. When I found all that you had put in place to stop me, I admit it made me question how I could get to you. But as it would happen, you sealed your own fate as you gave me all I would need to step inside. See, I was told about the secret ways in here by your first victim, your mother. Even now she lies, undignified, in that cold, unforgiving cellar where you buried her. The place where you sometimes go, naked, to sit and cry and talk to her. She was your undoing. She told me of the old forgotten tunnels that led under the house and into the servants' corridors straight to your room. I think you should die knowing this is her revenge as much as it is mine. William's eyes widened in horror 
to have someone know such intimate details of a part of his life he thought was, and would forever remain, unknowable, made him feel violated and exposed in a way he had never felt before. If what this man was saying was true, then the thought that his mother had seen every visit he had made and heard every word he had spoken nauseated him. Mason responded with a nonchalant sigh. All too often the vices and cruelties of powerful men go unchecked. I am here to restore the balance. But the one thing that has troubled me on my journey is how to ensure that, once I'm done, your voice doesn't follow me also. How do I silence you beyond the grave? It took some thought, and I have no way of knowing if it will work. But I think I have an answer. With that, Mason threw William's head against the corner post of the bed, and for a moment the wealthy man's world became a dizzying blaze of numb confusion. Then, in an instant, dirt-laden fingers were in his mouth, clutching at his tongue, pulling it out into the air, and Mason's blade sliced through it in several quick cuts. William's senses returned just in time for him to register the pain, and he screamed loudly for a short time before his mouth became too full of blood, and it gurgled into a moan. Undoubtedly, his cries would have been heard by the guards, but Mason was untroubled. By the time they could react, all would be done. As William continued howling through the growing well bubbling in his mouth, Mason pressed the blood-stained blade against his throat once more, dug down deep, and drew it swiftly across William's neck, tearing through vein and sinew. Oceans of blood poured to the floor. Unlike the attempt on Mason's own life, there was no doubt that this act had been done properly. The bleeding man's stifled wails descended into nothing, and his lifeless body thudded upon the floor. The sounds of the approaching guards grew louder, but as soon as the knife had finished its way across its victim's throat, Mason had stepped into the corner and receded back into the darkness of the hidden door, shutting it tight behind him and vanishing like a shadow. So when the men ran into the room holding their lights aloft and found their master lying in a pool of his own blood, his tongue next to his head, and no trace that anyone else had been in there, they couldn't help but think back to what had been said earlier in the day. Before long, their story spread throughout the city, permeating every class, creed, and corner. So much so it became a local legend, almost as hard to believe as it was terrifying to consider. William Ross was killed by a ghost.
This story was written and read by Andrew Bate, with music also by Andrew Bate. Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary is an audiobook series by Moth Sanctuary Productions. You can subscribe to the series on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and YouTube. Follow Moth Sanctuary Productions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or for more dark delights, visit mothsanctuaryproductions.com.